Welcome to The Craft. I'm your host, Mae Globus. This podcast is a collection of intimate conversations on artistry, mastery, and life with talented, passionately curious creatives and entrepreneurs. Most are dear friends, some are those I've admired from afar. I hope you enjoy these conversations, this exploration of the humanity that connects all of us as much as I do having them. Thank you for being here and for listening. Mark Brand is a human always in service to others. The restaurateur has been behind Bonita, Sea Monster Sushi, The Diamond, Persephone Brewing, and iconic downtown Eastside diner Savon Meats, but is well known for his global work as a social entrepreneur. Born in Scotland, his childhood was a nomadic one, moving from country to country. At 14 years old, he got his first job making pizza and never looked back, moving to Australia with his dad when he was 19. There, Mark became a hip-hop, rap, and funk DJ, and it was also where he was diagnosed with polycystic kidney disease. He then moved to Vancouver on a feeling, and for the last 15 years, rebuilt his life around restaurants and worldwide social impact. In this conversation, we dig deep into the idea of creating safety and boundaries in a chaotic environment, why his parents are his heroes, sobriety and the dark days he's had to go through, why we shouldn't look away from discomfort, projects he's currently working on around the world, and more. Resilience is a recurring theme in Mark's life, and his story is a reflection of that. Please enjoy this richly layered conversation with the transformational Mark Brand. Mark, welcome to The Craft. What a pleasure to be here with you. Yes, yes. It's been so nice to reconnect recently mm-hmm. and have some, some deep conversations. Definitely. And I just want to, again, share praise for your new practice. Thank you. Yeah. The use Thank of you. sound as a healing tool is incredibly important. So it was nice to be a recipient of that. And uh, I'm excited for you. Thank on you. That, journey. that means so much. I was trying to connect the dots and how we met and I was racking my brain. And my first re- recollection of you was a TEDx um, presentation you did. And I believe that's where I just, I first saw you. And I just remember thinking, what an eloquent human. And that's my first memory of you. And then somewhere along the way, I met you in person, but I cannot place where. So I thought I'd ask you if you remember. I think that happens, right? Is um, in our awareness of where we connect with people, if we exchange energetically Mm. in a positive manner, we just have this sort of glow of Mm -hmm. a memory. So I wouldn't be able to tell you in any way. I know that we've been in the same room yes. many, many, many times. Yeah. Uh, and that I've had nothing but positive experiences. <laughs> <laughs> but I could never. Oh, good. <laughs> I could never nail. See, um, I used to imbibe heavily. So mm. a lot of that stuff is blurry. Yeah. Uh, yes. A lot yes. of it's blurry. But that talk was uh, a really pivotal moment in my life. So Yes. Yes. We can get to that as well. All right. Well, how are you feeling today? I'm amazing. I just walk through the streets and people are eye smiling a lot. Mm. we figured out how important it is to smile at each other. And mm-hmm. I, I have great hope for that mm-hmm. in the city that's notoriously not. Yes. Um, why I love my neighborhood mm. is because everybody interacts and connects regardless of the state of their mental health or addiction. Mm. We all greet each other, mm-hmm. say hello and, and check in. Mm-hmm. And the normalcy of that, the people craving it, <laughs> you know, there's the other side, of course, of like, I actually got nervous to leave my house which is very odd, mm. but like I felt it genuinely in my body where I'm like, oh, outside, got to psych myself up. Mm. 
because of the the trauma that we're all carrying from this last year. Right. But outside of that, I'm so, so, so good. I, I just love human interaction. Me too. This is probably why we get along so well. <laughs> <laughs> One of the many reasons. <laughs> yes. Uh, tell me about growing up. Tell me about your childhood. Uh, I know that I, I, I don't know anything about it, so I'd love to, to explore this. Yeah, of course. Um, well, I was born in Scotland and stayed there the grand total of about a year. So I have never been back in a place called Dundee. And my, my dad was stationed there. And then he got transferred to Tunisia. And I'll switch over to what I understand from my mom and my dad's stories, uh, which is the first language that I picked up was Arabic mm. uh, while we were there. And there's lots of pictures of me running around naked in the sand, uh, having fun. And then we moved to England, to London. And I was there until five years old, uh, where I quickly picked up that accent as well and mm. had some fun with it. And my mom used to dress me in sporty little three pieces. And you know, I would say that those, those times I can't really remember anything of, but that they look great in pictures. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we lived in Alberta for four years in, in Calgary. My dad got stationed there and he's from Edmonton and uh, very little from that time as well. And there's some some trauma in that sort of four-year span uh, that I've been working on a lot in the last couple of years. So that is pretty blurry. I have like a couple of highlight reels that, that are there. And then we moved to Nova Scotia uh, where my mom was born and raised. Uh, and we reconnected with her family out there. And I spent almost 10 years there. Uh, so we were there, but we were also going back and forth in my teenage years to Nigeria. Wow. So my dad, uh, there's a very long story about my father that I love very much, but I won't share it today because uh, mm-hmm. it would literally take our whole time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's my hero. And he got transferred over to Nigeria to Port Harcourt to start. And he was like, you're never coming. And so I was there three months later and very excited about it. So Nigeria in the 90s, as intense as one word to say it. Um, I remember my first experience getting off a plane and the airport had no power, which is a very normal occurrence there. But for me, you know, if something has no power, there's something very wrong. There's nothing wrong. There's just no power. And gentlemen with AK-47s everywhere. There's a a strong military presence. And my dad being like, you're going to, I'm sending you this money. You're going to have it. And if anybody asks you anything, you just hand it to them, like hand them pieces of money to make sure that you're safe and you can get through because I can't get to you until you're on the other side. And it felt like this spy mission to me. I was like, wow, but this is really intense. Uh, And it was. It was a really intense place. And I loved it. Uh, a lot. So we were in Port Harcourt and Wari and then in Lagos. Uh, and cumulatively, I spent about a year there. Well, did you have to hand over the money at any point? All the time, mm. <laughs> uh, which was known as dashing or bribing. Mm-hmm. Um, and having this conversation yesterday, particularly about DMX, and I promise to bring it back, but Swiss Beats was on IG talking about how DMX never intended to hurt anybody how he had never had any intentionality. And then he immediately segued into, but when we were robbing, Mm. when we were robbing people. And so the discussion I had was people like, isn't that intentionality? You intended to rob somebody. And it's like, we're forgetting a very major part of that, which is what were the other options for them? Mm. And so when I look back at the time in Nigeria, people, there's a circumstance outside of that that becomes a cultural norm or a societal norm, I should say, not a cultural norm. That just is. 
people aren't getting paid any money, so they have to then use this as the system to make sure they can look after their families. So I understood that pretty quickly and was like happy to be part of the system because you couldn't actually trade Naira at any bank because it wasn't worth anything. Wow. So they had to find other ways. You got it. Yeah. So I learned a lot in Nigeria, like a lot, a lot. And then uh, that sort of encompasses my childhood. That takes us into early adulthood. Mm. That is a lot of moving around and change. How did that feel to you as a child? Did it seem normal or did you ever feel, I wish I was just rooted in one place? I think because there was so much triage in in my family unit and externally, um, that you don't really have time for that. You're just, you're trying to build safety, which has been a, a constant, but you don't see it as that, right? You're just, what are my friend circles that will keep me safe? in a, a violent neighborhood, in a violent school? What are the things that um, create comfort in this time? Mm-hmm. You're, you're constantly addressing in triage. Right? Like what's the next day going to look like in a bullied situation or what's the next day going to look like um, because of the th- risks I'm taking to feel like the adrenal boost that I'm doing for myself. So you're not ever thinking past, which is interesting because eventually we try to get back to only being in the present. But this is the the bad being in the present. Mm. You're avoiding everything that is underneath the surface and then you're trying to create something at least that feels semi-safe or has moments of joy in it. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have a whole lot of time to reflect (laughs) as a child. I wasn't like, oh man, I wonder what one day if I could just, you know, I start working at at 12 and uh, doing a paper route like any other kid and hustling as many as I could. And then got my first job at 14, Mm. uh, making pizza and cooking. And so that's, I never stopped working from then. Yeah. That was, that was kind of it. So people are like, I didn't really have much of a childhood. I was like, I don't think I really wanted much of a childhood. Mm. There's the difference. I do now. (laughs) (laughs) I do now for sure. But then I did not. I just wanted to hurry up and grow up. Mm. You said that your dad is your hero. So what, what's dad like? My dad, when he was in university, wanted to be an all-star hockey player. He comes from dirt floor background, right? His, his parents are farmers in a small house in Edmonton and lots of, lots of brothers and a sister and um, no real emotional stuff there. My parents listen to everything I do. They hang out on Twitch when I DJ. Like that's, we're, we're best friends now. And I feel very comfortable sharing all of this because they have also felt comfortable and it's it's part of our healing and our growth but my dad um got tuberculosis and was institutionalized for a couple of years and it stunted his growth and instead of wallowing in any of that um he found time to explore and understand what he wanted to be in the world he's a very soft-spoken man a man of very few words uh so i definitely get this from my mom's side (laughs) (laughs) but he uh ended up going and, and doing incredible work in university and becoming an engineer and then striking out into the world and to explore it and, and make it his own. And the things that he faced business-wise, reputation-wise, um, were just so what would seem insurmountable. And we were on a really good train, as I had described, for some of those years, and income was good. And then my dad uh, got asked to take a bribe. He was running his own business and he got asked to take a bribe uh, to do with something that would make people unsafe. And I'll keep it a little bit vague. Uh, and he said no. 
and the bride was a boat just to, to make the story even more more fun uh, and he was blackballed from the industry and people said terrible things about him um, and so instead of saying I'm going to you know I'm going to fall into a depression or do any of those things all I can remember is when my dad took the money that we had and bought a van and went to a trade show and decided that netting selling netting was going to be the thing that he did to keep us safe and so I can just remember this Astro van, this midnight blue Astro van full of just imagine like rolls of fabric, but netting. And he drove all over the maritime provinces selling it to oyster farmers and mussel farmers and to people who had tennis courts for a windbreak. And he never stopped smiling throughout it. So he went from like king of the hill of this thing and had his reputation just destroyed. And so the reason he ended up in Nigeria was they were baiting him. Mm. They're like, you'll never take this job entry level. And he said, I'll show you. In his mind, he was like, I would love to take that job. Thank you. I can start next week. And so he built his entire reputation back up from the ground, literally in ashes. And instead of addressing any of it directly, he just did the work, hmm. which ended him transferred to Australia and another junior position working for all kinds of people who didn't know half of what he did uh, and built his reputation back up even further to where he had his own business again in Australia in my 30s. Mm. And not once did he ever say a negative thing about any of those people or complain. Yeah, he and just kept going. It blew me away. It still blows mm. me away. You can, like, the, the emotional resonance and just, like, pure admiration. And people just don't know how to act. Mm -hmm. And just to watch and to have that as a North Star uh, has literally saved my life multiple times. Mm. Yeah, he's special. And your mom? warrior I mean, she's right here on my neck mm -hmm. first restaurant named after her uh bonita in gastown and yeah she's again comes from the same sort of situation deep instability her father died when she was 12 uh, my grandmother had uh, very serious mental illness issues and so she was bounced around to relatives and got her first job at 12 and just started working and worked to not be perceived as poor mm. that was like a very important thing for her and just blew me away entrepreneur running two or three businesses so she would be like in the house i remember we had an electric typewriter and she'd be like writing up all of these proposals and work and then going to work and always coming from work somehow and looking like a million dollars yeah so she battled polycystic kidney disease since i can remember which i also have and multiple transplants she almost died on the table a couple of times and we were on FaceTime last night. She's a, a miracle. Mm. Super special. So both your parents are, they're true survivors. They keep on, they keep on going. Yeah, mm. de definitely. And, you know, I think I, I talk to people a lot about this who have fam family issues. I'm air quoting for those who can't see us. And my parents didn't know how to have a kid. Because they, they were never raised in a way that was indicative of being a parent. They didn't have any tools. Mm. They didn't know. And then I was like on my own, independent from like five. You know, I'm just doing my own thing. Mm -hmm. um, which led to all kinds of problems. Mm. And I was out on my own very early. And out on couches and just not safe for a lot of the time. Because of the container that my mom and I had 
created that was destabilized a lot. Mm. Uh, and sometimes family units just are that way. Yeah. It just is. Yeah. And so you were talking about at 14, your first job was making pizza and cooking. Mm -hmm. So was this your first foray into restaurants? Yeah. I'm. Was it? No. I mean, my first real foray, I guess, would be my Aunt Diane, rest in peace, was one of my mentors before I knew what that word meant. And um, Diane was a publican. I mean, she ran pubs. She was like the best waitress in the city, the best bartender, the best cook. She did all these things. And those are all very esteemed positions in the Maritimes. We're service people uh, out on that side. And she taught me how to cook early because she would come over to the house and bless my parents. But Cooking's not really their thing. My mom can cook, but not like my Aunt Diane could, where she would come, like, cigarette one hand, glass of whiskey in the other, dig in the cupboards. I'm like, there's nothing in there. Mm -hmm. And then make a plate. Like, how did you do that? Yeah. How are you a magician? <laughs> it literally, it felt like magic to me. And she was like, you start to understand how it works. And so I'd be underfoot every Christmas, every Thanksgiving, every holiday that I could be around her watching her do the magic. Mm -hmm. I wanted to understand. And the job I got at the mall was with Lebanese guys doing their best Italian, Italian impression who also make amazing pizza. And it was the first time I made dough. And I remember that moment probably even more fun than it was because, you know, memory and time does that. But seeing it rise for the first time is magic. And being the kid with a bunch of broke kids that has access to the pizza I mean, that's that's Heaven. the gig. Yeah, <laughs> right. It really is, right? And it was a lifelong thing of food makes everybody happy. Mm. It made my family stable and happy. It made my friends stable and happy. And so it just stuck with me forever. Right. I mean, over food, true connection can occur, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So tell me about your... Actually, I wanted to go back, um, and we were chatting about this earlier, and I, I had read somewhere that you have some dog tags that your mom and dad gave each other and they're initialed and now you have them and you wear them yeah. when you need that. Yeah. Yeah. Power and boost. I mean, I can see what's around your neck and for those of you who can't see it, it's a beautiful stone around a chain and things hold power and they hold energy. <clears throat> Pardon me. The dog tags symbolize my parents at their best to me. And it also symbolizes their resilience to me. So under the most attack or during the worst times of everything that we've tried to do and mistakes that I've made, I could just reach down with a thumb and a forefinger and just give them a rub and be like, all right, we're good. Mm -hmm. Everything is still okay. Yeah, It's going to take time, but it's going to be all right. And so my parents in the 70s when these were trending, I guess, um, didn't have a lot of money, but they were getting there. They were starting to have some money. And they took all of their money and bought each other these monogram dog tags unbeknownst to each other for that same Christmas. No way. So they had no idea and they gifted them to each other. My mom gave me hers when I graduated high school, which was, <laughs> well, for all intents and purposes, a miracle. It is still the highest education I have. Mm. Uh, and so she had my name engraved on the back. And then my dad used to rock his every day and it was a little shorter. I was like, yo, you should really let me have that so I can have both. And he was like, of course, yeah, you should definitely have it. And so I've worn them 25 years. Yeah, you yeah. can carry them with you. 
everywhere. Everywhere you go. Mm-hmm. I've lost them in hotels before when I still drank and like they come back to me. Oh, uh, yes. On airplanes and they come back to me. It's yeah. They're meant to be with you. Totally. They're very special. <laughs> so tell me about let's go into to young adulthood for you. What did this look like? I thought because my parents were like, you have to go to school too smart not to go to school like you have to make the best of your intellect and, and do something with it that matters and still in those tropes right you're not going to be a doctor obviously you should be a lawyer I was like oh I hate lawyers I was like right you know let's appease them and I enrolled at St. Mary's University and I did pre-law philosophy and psychology and instead I just sold weed basically out of the cafeteria and LSD um, played lots of high stakes games like cribbage didn't respect my professors, didn't believe in the technologists or textbooks. Like when I read the Psych 101 book, I was like, this is, this is dangerous. Like the way that we're evaluating people is dangerous. And so I gravitated heavier towards philosophy and I just loved it because it felt open-ended and it felt true to me. It felt energetically true. Like the thought that we in a hundred years had decided that we knew everything about the brain and how to approach people's trauma was very triggering for me. I was like, how could this be one size fits all? That seems insane. And it seems like a better approach to be, to me would be to be comforting and to be safe and create spaces of safety. But in psychology, it seems like the analytical portion just dishonors the trauma. I was like, fuck all this shit. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not with it. Uh, my dad got transferred to Melbourne, Australia. I was 19. I was a dishwasher. Uh, I was working retail and I was a dishwasher at a, a bar in town called the Neon Armadillo. It was uh, not great a great name. It was great. <laughs> not a very rewarding position. Mm. Lots of white Russian glasses. Um, I still have lifelong friends from that. Uh, but I was one of the darkest periods of my life. I was doing lots and lots of drugs and drinking constantly and, and just felt like, what am I doing? Mm. I'm going to finish this degree. I'm going to be, you know, a B student. And then I'm going to pursue law for three. No, I don't want to do that. So I said to my dad, I'm going to come visit. And I went over to visit him. I believe it was Christmas and got to Australia. And there was at that time, four channels on TV. And that's important because everybody was social. Everybody was out. It was vibrant. It was busy. The dining culture was crazy. I was like, wow, there's something here for me. And so I said, can I take a sabbatical? <laughs> and my dad was like, yeah, you want to come sleep on the floor? He had this like really modest one bedroom apartment. And so I did. I got a like $200 pullout futon and slept on his floor. Got a job cooking breakfast at a hotel there. And then I was like the doorman for a bottle shop and club at night that was attached to the hotel. And I was the breakfast cook in the morning. Wow. So I would sleep. Not a lot of sleep. No, I would sleep on the banquette. I slept in the afternoons. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Which was right. kind of great because my dad and I had different hours. Mm. Um, so we shared that space. And uh, then I had a high school friend who came to Australia too, fell in love with a girl. And he was like, hey, we're up on the Great Ocean Road in this place called Lorne. You should come work with us for the summer instead of grinding it out here. And that just went from cooking job to bar job to floor job and stayed in service there and just fell deeply in love with Australia. Mm. Um, and what I always loved, like always, always, and I like have critical moments from high school and pause tapes, Nigeria, and like watching real DJs work in Lagos to trying to emulate that myself. I was like, the top of the food chain and service is the DJ. 
Like, I want to be that guy. And so it should happen. Manifestation still a real thing. Yes. I was hanging out with a crew, and this guy was like, my DJ canceled for Friday. Mark, you have really good musical taste. Would you like to come? I was like, yeah, of course. I'd, I'd love to. And DJ at this pub. It's called the Prince Alfred. Prince Albert. One of the two. Uh, PAs it was, was its moniker. And so I took the Friday night. I got one turntable because it was all I could afford. And then Winamp was big at the time. And I had a PC at home. And they had a mixer on site. So I literally lugged in a cab this gigantic computer, my one turntable, my like 15 records. I remember having a Busta Rhymes MP3 and like a bunch of others. And I played and we got through the night. And he was like, that was really great. Like, you were super energetic, and it was really fun. I was like, uh, that was the best. Can I come back next Friday? He's like, well, the guy's got a regular gig. And he ended up firing that guy. Within about two months, I was playing Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays. And then for the next seven years, my career was in music. So mm. I, I was a hip-hop, rap, funk, and soul DJ in Australia. Adored it. Stayed close to the service industry, but worked with underground rappers, worked with all touring artists. And at the end of it... My last two years, I got to tour with Cypress Hill, with Gangstar, with the Sugar Hill Gang, like mm. heroes that became friends. Uh, and so music was always a very integral part of, of what I did and cared about. Mm. And then when did you end up back here? So I am married. I'm in Australia. I have a beautiful home, everything I could ever dream of. I'm literally doing my dream job. I get to fly to Sydney once a month. I'm playing in Asia. It's the greatest. My life consists of hanging out with my wife, with my friends, working with artists, and digging for records. Like, what, what else could go right? And as we know, life doesn't work that way. And so I was going for my permanent residency in Australia very excitedly. Like, I'm going to be an Australian. I've worked really hard on my independent business here. Lots of people eat off what we do. And... I went for my ultrasounds. So you have to just make sure that you don't have tuberculosis or any other conditions. And my scan came back positive for polycystic kidney disease, which I had an inkling. You know, I was starting to see some of the signs. I had some soreness and some tired where I shouldn't have. And the doctors, um, <laughs> have you ever been for an ultrasound? I have. Okay. So you know they can't tell you anything mm -hmm. from behind them to keep the screen turned away from you, right? And the poor girl went white. Mm. And I was like, oh, no. And like I, f I felt in my whole body, like I literally felt, you know, when your, your tongue starts to tingle from anxiety, like that whole thing happened to me. And I spun out, like I disassociated and was like, this is not happening. There's a way around this. And so I had to wait for two weeks. And they called me and they said, Mr. Brand. I was like, unfortunately, I have polycystic kidney disease. And they're like, yes. I was like, what does that mean for my visa? That's all I care about. And they're like, well, this is not what they said, but the process was you have two options. One is sign off on all medical rights. So you'll have to take care of anything to do with this condition financially for the rest of your life. And we'll give you residency or you can get out of the country. The rest of your visas are now moot. Uh, so I had four months to pack up and leave. Wow. And everything that I had built was gone in sort of the snap of the fingers. Um, we lost all our money on our house. The market was in a dive, but had to sell it, like forcibly. Couldn't just transfer it over and have somebody else deal with it. And I looked at all of Canada, to make this part brief, 
and realized that the only place that I felt resonance or opportunity was here in BC. And I'd never been outside of the airport or a day ah, trip. Just a feeling. A really, really strong feeling of intuition. And it became apparent why much later, but I just felt really connected to it. And there were some people here uh, that I could ground myself with. My friends who I'd grown up with in the Maritimes had all settled with children uh, and were doing amazing, but were just at a different pace. Like I'd been at one of the most livable cities in the world. I wanted to build. I wanted to play records. I wanted to create. And I went and played records. I remember my first night, I got given 25-ish dollars and a couple of drink tickets. And I was like, I'm like five grand. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> you're nobody. Mm. You are nobody. Nobody cares about your resume, or your mixtapes, or anything that you've done. You lived on another planet. You didn't live in another city or in another, like, adjacent country you lived on another planet none of your experience is relevant here so having to start from scratch was very very challenging uh, mm. but that you did yeah I definitely did and I definitely knew this was the place and I found out later why much later uh, why I was supposed to be here mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so in this this rebuild um you ended up in restaurants and hospitality for many years and you still still are involved. So mm -hmm. you mentioned Benita, which I didn't know was named after your mother, which is beautiful. Yes, that's right. <laughs> uh, sea Monster Sushi, The Port Side, uh, Number One Noodle House, and you're still with a diamond yeah. and Save on Meats, which yeah. we can dive into. Um, and Persephone Brewing. Mm -hmm. What does that feel like? You You built it. I mean, so many incredible partners, so many incredible relationships and just exceptional cooks and managers and humans. And when you get to be a part, whether it be positive or negative, of somebody's growth, what an honor. Mm. Like, what an honor to be able to hold that space. And I always said that I learned more from the bosses that were not great than I did from the bosses that were excellent. Yeah, We don't learn a lot in comfort. And I've been the bad boss for sure. Mm. So many times just dealing with my own shit and imposter syndrome, and alcoholism and all of the things. And none of those are an excuse um, at all. But I've also been an awesome leader. Mm. I've been both. Right. Um, and I continue to try to be the latter. Mm. And so just looking at where working with other people has taken them on their paths is just I mean, you can see, you can see my face. Yeah, you're smiling. It's joy. Right. And like, you can only ever hope that people land in a place that feels like they're in service to their own passion and stability and love. Mm -hmm. And it's been one of the honors of my life to work in the city for 15 plus years and through some of the hardest <laughs> things I could imagine. Yeah. Um, and, and be public during it. Because being public in our businesses is very unforgiving. Yes. It's very it, challenging. It is. Yeah, the, the media can be very polarizing and sure. the coverage can be. Yeah, so. They love you when you're winning. Mm. They love you when you're winning until you're winning too much. Mm. Or until the winds blow or until an interpersonal relationship goes in a way. Mm. And unfortunately, we forget that the media is controlled by humans. Yes. And humans get their feelings hurt. Yes. 
This is very true. Mm-hmm. There was something that I, uh, that I read and um, I really loved it and I wanted to explore it. I know Save on Meats is very dear to your heart and you do a lot of work in the downtown east side. And, um, you know, I, I read this, uh, something that you said, it said, and it was in reference to Save on Meats. I refuse to fail. It's not an option. But Savon changed who I was and who I wanted to be. So I'd love to explore this pivotal time for you. Who did you want to be? Isn't that funny when you say that? Like when you say that to me, I can experience a whole different person. Like that's me still, but that's me fighting to prove to myself. Mm. Like I'm still trying to prove to myself that I'm good enough to do it. That it's okay. Mm. Right? And there's so many years in there where I was just like, I would wake up every day and go, what am I doing? Like, I'm in so far over my head. I'm so far over my head. Like, I don't have the skill sets. My team is not equipped for this. And yet, with our sheer willpower and love between us, we were able to do things that made no sense. Mm. They just generally, on paper, people are like, this, there's no way this is going to work. Like, you underestimate the power of loving of people. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I mean, we didn't fail. No. We, we didn't like what it comes down to is that kitchen operates every day and pumps out as of next week 1200 meals a day mm. scratch made we work on incredible waste support systems there's so much to share yes um, supportive employment we've created archetypes around that that are shared globally mm-hmm. we created alternate currency back in 2013 that people just blew up all over the planet and used to engage with each other like it's some things are just more important than a perceived success. Mm. It's just, you get caught, especially in towns like this, that can often feel like high school. And it's like, is this where you're standing? Is your reputational status? It's, it's all smoke. It's not real. But it hurts people, and it, it really tears them down. I've watched it, watched so many people become twisted versions of themselves based on their professional reputation and like that's not don't let that be you mm-hmm. you're so much bigger and better than it and save on is one of those projects that just is such a north star um and a better life foundation's operation with it and the work that we do there is just so much more important um than a maligned opinion mm-hmm. and you employ a lot of people from the downtown east side at save on meets correct mm-hmm. yeah it's i mean it's it's the archetype yeah yeah and it's, you know, it's just throwing that word around, but like, how do you create, for a better terminology, a blueprint of social impact business that can work intrinsically with community organizations? So we work with over two dozen organizations in the downtown east side, from the downtown east side women's center to youth unlimited to all of these groups. And we support them in a way that we know how best mm-hmm. we show up in food, we show up in support, like we know that if something goes wrong in food in that neighborhood, that we're going to be the first stop. That megaphone will come to us. If somebody's kitchen breaks down, we're the first call. Mm. Like we, we are the people that are there as the backbone of that food security. And we've got so many other people doing that same work. And ultimately, it's about being in service to the people who need us most. And people look away from that neighborhood. And I mean, I still feel the same energy I felt in 2013 when I took the stage at the Orpheum. Mm. How can we look away? I just, I mean, you can, but I promise you what happens to you. And I promise that if you encounter somebody who's unhoused, you can compartmentalize it 
But unless you're a psychopath, and there's a very small percentage of those, it's going to impact you. And I work in New York, and I, I share this analogy because everybody takes the train. I love the subway. But if you get off the subway, and you're, you've rested overnight, and you've been able to say, okay, I'm processing, I've got some real rest, you're up, you have your coffee, you go to the train, you experience somebody homeless on the way. You're going to see somebody homeless on the train. You get off the train, you might see a family unhoused. And you continue to move towards your job. By the time you get there, you are under attack internally. No question. And so you're piling on sugar, caffeine, whatever it is you need to do to escape into function. But that takes its toll. Mm. And we're consistently looking to escape instead of to solve it. So in the downtown east side, we have absolutely everything we need just municipally to fix it. Mm. it it's just a matter of numbers. And if we know, this is just fact, that it costs us as a municipality and as a province two and a half times minimum more every year, every single year, to keep somebody unhoused than it would to house them in wraparound services, that's a choice that we're making and poverty is an act of violence. Mm. We're complicit. And so from that micro feeling that you have to the societal responsibility we all have, how can we or how might we, design thinking brain coming on, create a safe container for people to learn about what's going on. And that's what Save On really does. Mm. They create experiences, dinners, the greasy spoon is on. Yes, like I've been to a few. Yeah, yeah. You get to come, be safe, do something that you're aware of and know, see a chef you love. And learn more. Exactly. Mm-hmm. The soft advocacy comes into play. Mm. And so I believe that the longer term play here when I first came at it, I was just angry. I was so angry and guilty because I'm complicit. You have to get into a space of like, how can I help others come to this work? And how can we help to change the narrative societally? That's Thomas. Thomas's parents has died and he's bipolar one. He slipped off his meds. He had a critical injury. He was prescribed opioids. That prescription ran out. He bought them on the street and here he is. This shit is not complicated. Mm. But that is not a junkie or a crackhead or a problem. And the fact that we still, because of our anger and inability to process, do this and say those things and vilify people, it just, it makes me really, really sad. Yeah, I mean, in, in you saying that and, and providing that example, it's we're not seeing that person as a human that has gone through unspeakable trauma. To cope we dehumanize or compartmentalize. And then then we just move into all of the other tropes. Booze, pills, mm-hmm. sex, binge watching, tech, doom scrolling. Right. All of them are coping mechanisms and they allow us to escape momentarily from the pain that we feel. Yeah, that momentary distraction. Yeah. Mm. And so you've experienced that in your life too. You're, you're five years sober? Four. Four. Two relapses last year. Minor, luckily, um, only in alcohol, mm-hmm. uh, but dark ones, bad ones. Um, minor in time, I guess, <laughs> if I was to reframe that. Uh, you know what? what's amazing about addiction or any of our trauma is that people play a game of comparison. And so I think for anybody listening, what's really important is everything that I just shared about people who have it really, really, really bad who are either street entrenched or they're in shelter or they're dealing 
with something, that doesn't make your trauma any less. That doesn't make your pain or the struggle you're going through with mental illness or interpersonal things or existential crises or pandemic coping. Your feelings are equal and matter. It's, there's not a competition of pain. It seems so crazy to me that people would say, oh, my problems don't matter. But all day in my life, they do it to me. They're like, my problems don't matter, Mark. Obviously, you're dealing with all of these other things with people and you see real pain. I'm like, I see real fucking pain right now. I'm looking at you when I see it. Mm-hmm. Your experience is not moot. It matters. And it matters for you to be a functioning member of your family, of your friend circle, for you to be safe. And so I think that we just, we devalue that. When somebody says to me, I'm not enough of an alcoholic to say that I am. Mm. Oof, who said? Mm. Who said? You know, I have four glasses of rosé at night and I definitely have a problem because I wake up depressed and I wake up tired and I wake up fuzzy and I just don't feel like I'm sharp for my kids. But, you know, I don't want to pretend that, you know, I have a Bourdain level problem. Like, how do you know what Bourdain's problem? Like, what is that? Stop doing that. And then people do it externally to us. Mm. They start to judge our trauma. Like, oh, mm, that's not as relevant as this. Yo, first of all, who made you judge and jury? And secondly, why would you, why does that matter to you? How could that ever affect your life? showing compassion for somebody else right and yeah it's a slippery slope so if you're you're listening right now you matter it matters Mm -hmm. it all matters yeah you i I agree your feelings matter what you're going through matters what happened to you Mm -hmm. matters yeah and if you can't if one and i think this is the thing about um being able to unpack your trauma is that as as you can do that and you know begin to heal going back to sound therapy vibration you know you raise that that frequency and that ripples out into the world so important mm-hmm. you so, are so you're important. right on the edge of describing the mycelium of humanity right we're all connected period. you know period you know even if you look at quantum physics and you look at biofields it's the science is there we are connected <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that you, know, you were preaching to the choir but anybody yes who's out i know there, anyone is out there she speaks the truth yeah we are the redwood forest Yes, yes. And so, you know, just put as much love and positivity and light and compassion as you can in the world all the time. And that doesn't mean you got to roll around with crystals and chimes and finger symbols. It just means like, think about the next time you tear somebody down. Mm -hmm. Maybe just don't. You know, and I love what you said way earlier in the conversation about, you know, you've, you've been... Not great, not a great boss, but you've also been an amazing leader. And this is the whole thing about being human is you're not one side or the other. You can't be. It just fully. Doesn't, it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. What does exist is the like either protecting it or keeping your shadow secret or mm-hmm. allowing your shadow to shine and saying, these are the faults that I have and the flaws that I have as I know them in this moment and I'm working on them mm-hmm. and I'm doing my best and I make amends wherever and however I can. Yeah. And sometimes the, those bridges are just not buildable, mm. but that you can't live in that space. 
you can't. Otherwise, you're no longer in service to yourself or anybody else. And there's only so much that we can carry. Right. And I had figured out in about 2016, um, I was doing a residency at the Stanford D School around poverty. And I was one of the last civic innovation fellows. We were a cohort of five. And I got brought down there for a year and I did street level research. So I was doing my research in the Mission and Tenderloin districts, directly doing ethnography, ground level interviews with people who are homeless or experiencing it or temporarily. And then also just doing deep level research, design stuff and fell in love with it because it started to provide answers in ways that I was just as an entrepreneur hypothesizing, Mm. making all these assumptions where you have to test them and prove them and learn. And when I was in that space, people in my life couldn't understand how and why. Like, how did you ever get into there? Oh my God, how did they? I'm like, wow, how would you, that's how you perceive me? Mm. Is that I'm not enough for that? That's, that's terrible. Luckily they perceive me <laughs> in a way that they think I bring tremendous value. And then I got the chef position, the executive chef position for the Lodato Sea Challenge with Pope Francis. I'm going back to do a round two with that. And when I got that, people were so mad at me. They're like, you're not a real chef. Mm. I'm like, I've been cooking for 30 years. And no, I'm not in the way that you perceive that position in the white coat of doing the free stages and, you know, bleeding from my fingertips in Europe. I'm not. But I definitely know how to run a kitchen and I can cook my ass off. But if my perception of me is from a line cook in Montreal, then I'm in trouble already because I can't show up in my strongest power and continue to learn. So as you graduate into these spaces, you have to be very careful what you're listening to and who you're listening to. Yes. Yeah. And when that, those types of projections are, are coming at you, what are you telling yourself in your mind when that is coming your way? Have you developed some sort of way at looking at it or do you just, you just simply like, I don't need to listen to that? No, I don't do the latter. I do the former. Mm. I think the latter um, would devalue, first of all, people's energy and opinion, Mm. uh, which I don't. I value it very highly, particularly people who don't like me. Now, that's going to sound counterintuitive, but there is always something in there. Not always. Often something in there that is worth evaluating. Right? There's worth about, is it a communication issue? Did I hurt this person's feelings? Why is that perception there? And so back when we started Save On and I got attacked constantly by advocates, my rebuttal would be, come meet me for a coffee, I'm buying. And people were like, what? No, I don't want to meet you. You're the worst. I'm like, okay, well, I'm here for a real conversation if you want to have it. And if you don't, that's cool. But now we know mm. that you don't actually want to talk. You just want to hurl. You want to be comfortable from your chair, judging me from a distance from a person you knew in 2013, almost a decade ago. And that feels comfortable and safe to you. And that's okay. But know that if you wanted to really have a conversation, we could have one. And so people used to come meet me. And it was amazing because I would sit and just truly listen. Like, oh, wow, I really did do that. I'm so sorry. Or the media did put that and twist that or edit that video in a way that really hurts your feelings. I get it. What I was actually talking about is my research with over a hundred people who are living in this way. I was saying that's how they felt, not me. You have the ability to have a conversation. When people shut a conversation down and just judge, there's not much you can do, but you know you've done your work. Yeah. And my work can never be to try to 
address all of that because <laughs> I wouldn't be able to do my jobs and I got a lot of them, but I do my best to, to show up in a space of understanding of compassion and say, Hey, that person's hurting. Yeah. I was just going to say that it sounds like you're, you're um, creating a container of understanding and in a way you're going to vet out the, the people who really want to have that exchange in return of course, versus the ones like you said, that just wanted to sit in their, their chairs and judge. Or, or there's a safety in that for people. Like if it's part of their narrative that you're the bad guy and it keeps them in a space of like mental safety because it proves out what they're fighting for or against that you're going to be the villain in some people's stories. Mm-hmm. All of us. Yeah. No matter what happens in this life, if you attempt things that are particularly against social, social norms. When I first started Save On, I said, charities suck. The government's not doing enough. Businesses are complicit in doing nothing. And the community is just standing by. Yeah. I said that in an interview. Now, I was very That'll make you a lightning rod. Oh my God. (laughs) One of my mentors called me. He was like, now that you have no friends, and I mean that, how you figure you're going to work this thing out? I was like, what do you mean? He's like, you literally just vilified everybody, including yourself. I was like, yeah, including myself. He's like, but you didn't say the myself part. Mm. I was like, oh, that's going to be a problem. Yeah. (laughs) Boy, was it. (laughs) And Learning lesson. You learn. You learn. Ultimately, you know, our work has got to be more important than a personal opinion of a statement made whenever it was made or whatever mm-hmm. that may look like. And I know that it is yeah. because three days ago we cracked 3 million meals. Mm. In a Congratulations. Seventh. My team's incredible. Yeah. Congratulations to you and your team. Thank you. Received mm. and just like blanketed out in that same mycelium. Think mm-hmm. about all of the people involved and there's been thousands yeah. who've helped us on this journey. We don't do this alone. We don't do life alone. We shouldn't do life alone. Definitely not. Yeah. Uh, This last year, you know, I've been chatting with a lot of my guests on it, but um, I just wanted to know, how how have you been navigating it all? Have you learned anything about yourself in the last year? Oh, man, so much. So much. The gift and the curse. Mm. So I was working in Thailand in February working with sustainable brands, um, doing a bunch of cooking, uh, specifically with the the goal at hand to help restructure elderly food systems in Thailand. So they love their elders, but the systems weren't serving. And people in the most, what should be the most comfortable parts of their life is like, how do we, how might we get people excited about looking after in this way? And the pandemic was hitting in Asia. And we were masked up because it's Bangkok. <laughs> So you're masked up anyway, but you could start to feel it. And then I had engagements in Los Angeles. We were doing an engagement with Swipe Out Hunger at LA County where I was cooking a lunch. And then I had a dinner that I was cooking the next night. And that was my regular schedule. I was just like on the road, nonstop cooking and holding space for conversation and development training. And I felt something different. And I sent a note out to all the guests of this dinner. And I was like, look, I'm going to need you if you're experiencing any symptoms, fever, cough, those sorts of things. And this is the end of February and folks are like, I'm fine, dude. Also, I think you're taking this a little seriously. I was like, I was just in Seoul airport and it looked like me and the ghostbusters. There's people in hazmat suits and just me. Like I'm not exaggerating this. It's time to really be safe. I got back here and my life has always been on the street 16 hours a day, every day. Uh, I'm immune compromised as we discussed and I got locked in. My doctors are like, you can't go anywhere period. 
We had to start shutting businesses down. And then I had to just be alone with me for about 90 days to start. And it was incredibly challenging. Relapse occurred. And then coming out of that, I was like, how can you be best of service to other in this space? Let's design it. What can you do? And so instead of getting paid for keynotes, which is a large part of my work for the last bunch of years, I was like, how can I just give my time away to communities that could need me? And so I just started making offers. And people started to reach out once they saw me speaking from home. And then it became four or five days a week I was doing talks. I was teaching. And then I created a thing called Sharpen Up. So I'd been working in Brownsville really heavily. Uh, Brownsville, for those of you who don't know, is the most affected zip code on the continent. So the highest rates of poverty, of diabetes, of heart disease, of violence, domestic violence, murder. It's Where just is this? Brownsville, New York. It's oh, in, New York. It's in Brooklyn. Okay. Yeah. And so I was working there with women and children, particularly teaching culinary skills. So I'd go to community center, organize with people, get with the kids and with the women, and we would cook with a bunch of chef friends of mine. It was super fun. And it occurred to me, lightning rod-ish, like, what if we just kept doing this work? I'm getting my groceries delivered. Everything I do is via Zoom. I can teach via Zoom. So can my chef friends. They can come from wherever, and I can compensate them for their time. And we can deliver groceries based on people's likes, dislikes, cultural needs. So we just wrapped cohort 10 of that, uh, 30 families at a time. And so we focused on the kids, but we were breaking isolation because everybody's locked up in these pressure cookers and we know domestic violence increased and all these things. How can we cut through all of that using food as the center point and kids? And it was one of the greatest gifts truly of my life is to spend time with these kids and these families and get to know them in a way. Um, so that's become a, prod, a project that we're launching here in Canada. And we did our first in-person, quote unquote, with masks on at Strathcona Community Center two weeks ago. And we'll be teaching that here in Canada, too. So developing things that help people is how I cope. And mm. then music. Music. Guess what was in my house? What was in your house? All my records. Ah, uh, what were you playing? I All s- kinds? I played last night. I play mm. at 3 p.m. today. I play on Twitch. Right. So I re-engaged the DJ community. I have the deep honor of being a coach and a mentor with Jazzy Jeff's Playlist Community. Mm. The Playlist Community is, you know, 120 people once a year from De La Soul to Masego and everybody in between who the Jeff lifts up. So we leaned into that and started doing a monthly concert series called Streams for Dreams. Mm-hmm. Next one uh, is coming up. And DJ Craze is headlining. Maceo did the last one. Jeff's done one. Z-Trip, Bastard, et cetera. That community still means the world to me, but I felt like I didn't understand it actually got taken from me. Yeah. So I was in a mentor capacity, but I was no longer a DJ. Mm. And so I would play records, but now I play all the time. I only play 45s. Um, I love it. It takes me out of my body. It gives me just extreme joy. We've got Mm. a rabid little community of about 2,000 people and like 50 or 100 show up every time I play. And we just get to be in space and community with each other. And so that was the second part of my coping mechanism was story through book or through music has always been a a soother. You with sound, you and I have discussed this. I listen to a Marlena Shaw or I listen to an Al Green or I read a Graham Green and I'm good. It just takes me to a place of understanding that it's all part of the human experience. So I guess in short, I took it as an opportunity to address some more of my demons that I needed to work on and then also just to bring joy to as many people as I could by letting my guard all the way down again 
when you are perceived in a position of, <laughs> I work with the United Nations, right? So I'm the chair of the United Nations Catalyst thread on food and poverty. It's a very big position. I should be holding myself in a certain way. I'm playing camera on records and that's okay. And we need to look at ourselves more in that space mm. of it's okay to be both. Yes, yes. I've had those conversations um, with people about, you know, you've got all of these different sides to you. You know, you don't have to be one or the other. You can be all of them. Yes. All at once. Normalize being a polymath. Yeah, yeah. We did before. The people we look most up to were scientists and artists. Right. At the same damn time. Yeah, Da Vinci. Right. And the list goes on endlessly of people who recreated the way the world we look at operates. Mm -hmm. And then we stop that and we're like, no, you're a doctor. Yes, yeah. And so, you know, every once in a while you'll see on Instagram like a, a lawyer that DJs in the evenings or somebody who does something like, oh, that's so trivial. Or like, that's just like a one-off. Or like, no, just share your gifts with the world. I draw. I'm not an excellent artist, but I draw and I share it on the internet mm. because I believe that's a part of me and somebody's, it resonates with somebody in there mm -hmm. and that it's, it's my truth. Right. And so why would I overthink about sharing things like that and just, uh, just sharing them? Just who you are. Exactly. Mm. Well, you've got a lot coming up this year. So we were chatting earlier that uh, in the last year you've been, um, a culin culinary council member for the Food Bank of New York. Mm -hmm. And you're going on the road. I am. Yeah, very soon. You'll be gone for a long time. Um, yeah, what else is on the horizon for you? We're working on our first brick and mortar. Yeah, we're working on our first brick and mortar in New York. And so I've been working on that for three and a half years. And uh, we're, we're moments away from signing a lease that we'll see a kitchen in a space just like Save On Meats exist in Brownsville. Oh, wow. So if you think about the downtown east side is one of the most affected places on the planet. Like it's not just like, oh, the downtown east side is bad for Vancouver or for Canada. No, it's truly. I've worked in almost all of them. It is equally, if not worse, than most areas that are of this depth of visible mental illness, open air drug market. Like it needs our love and attention. Mm. Brownsville. So my point of working in those two areas and gathering data is we have solutions with partners. We can point to who does the work the best. If we just poured money and resources at these people doing the work, and I've got a laundry list of people in Vancouver who I adore, we can we can make things really change. Um, so I'll be in New York. Um, I'm going up to Alaska uh, in two weeks' time, and I'll be up there for eight days. So the work, I was in Iceland doing very similar work where we look at climate change face-on. So we look at the glaciers in their face and see what's happening and see what's happening with the fish populations um, so I'll be doing some work in Alaska. Then I come back here. I'll be out in Nova Scotia uh, and doing a bunch of pop-ups, safe pop-ups with chefs that I adore out there and spending time with my folks. And then I've got six weeks of engagements with the United Nations, uh, the Future Food Institute and the FAO around UN Food Systems Week and three boot camps that I'll be the executive chef for in Polica, Sicily and in Rome in July, or sorry, June and July. Mm. And back to New York and... Hopefully the deal is done at that point. We start designing the space and then who knows? Yes. Incredible. The world is your oyster as it always has been. It's really nice to feel the excitement of going back to be with people. And I'm mm. sure we all feel that way. Like even just spending time with you two in the studio today, like energetically I feel better, more myself, more grounded. 
And we can't say enough about pushing past our discomforts in these moments where we've created these safe containers of cocoons for ourselves during COVID and getting back with people. Right. Right. Just getting back with people and whether that be naming your anxiety amongst it, naming that it feels unsafe, creating the boundaries for yourself that it does, it can be safe for you. Uh, getting back is so important mm. and we're all going to be back soon. Fingers crossed pe- people. I'm crossing my fingers over here. You can't see me. I have uh, two more questions for you. Okay. The first one is, what would Mark right now say to young Mark back then, if he was going to share one universal truth about life? It's always going to be okay. It's always going to be okay. It feels like it's not, but it's always going to be okay. There's a a truth about time, right? And I say time heals all wounds. Uh, it does. Mm, I love that. And my last question that I ask everyone, with what you do, what is it that you want to leave behind in the world? I have zero desire for a personal legacy. Like there's nothing in me that wants any of that. I want to be able to build and give away everything so that more people can have safety in their communities of a system that will support them both financially and with love and community. And that's what I, I hope happens. I think we get caught up and we're told as leaders that it's about us, and it is, but not us, us, all of us. There is no us and them. So when you remove the I from the equation and developing what it is that you want to create in the world, I ask myself on a consistent basis, how can I best show up in service? And I mess it up all the time, but I try my best. And so there is no, there is no plan. And if there is no memory, because ultimately we're all, we're all just going to go back to that same door we come from. It's about how can I build as many systems as possible that help make this world a better place. Mark, thank you so much. I, f- I feel like this conversation could have gone way longer and in all kinds of directions. So hopefully I can have you back someday. And so much love for you. Thank you for being here, being so open and being who you are. Love you and thank you. And yeah, love uh, you too. my door is always open. I thank will be you. more than happy to come and share. And um, I hope everybody who's listening to this feels safe and also loved. I hope that as well. Thank you everyone for listening. If you enjoyed that last conversation, be sure to check out more episodes of The Craft on Spotify and guest photo galleries on the website at wearethecraft.com. Thanks again for listening.